Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. My co-host is Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Liverpool Football Club are the champions of Europe. And Andy Ruiz Jr. is the heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, Saturday was absolutely exhausting to be a spectator of sports, if those sports are both soccer and boxing. Um, First of all, there was Liverpool, the greatest soccer team of all time, winning the European Cup for the first time since 2005. Uh, And for a while, that was the main story on the back pages across the pond, or the digital back pages anyway. And then a few hours later... That was supplanted by the big news from Madison Square Garden. And I'm sure a lot of young soccer fans in England and around the world watched the Liverpool game and thought to themselves, you know, maybe if I work hard enough and train hard enough, maybe one day that could be me up there. And then later on that night, middle-aged men everywhere were thinking, (laughs) I'd like to be heavyweight champion. I think I'll order a pizza. (laughs) Yes, it's one more fat joke. But you know what? Andy Ruiz has heard them all before. And who is laughing now, eh? Mm-hmm. Andy bloody Ruiz, that's who. That's he's right. the heavyweight champion. And frankly, he deserves it. Yeah, well, he's a heavyweight title True. holder of the world, if uh, if I'm going to be my uh, nitpicky, annoying self about all of this. But yes, indeed, he definitely deserves it. And uh, yeah, the fat jokes, you know, I referenced his Chris Farley Chippendales physique last week. Uh, At the end of that SNL sketch, the judges gave the Chippendales job to Patrick Swayze, you may recall. Ruiz versus Joshua has me wondering if they got it wrong. If if they got too wrapped up in the superficial elements and uh, should have given it to the guy with all the moves. Uh, But seriously, whether he looks like what you think of a heavyweight champion looking like or not, Andy Ruiz Jr. is one of the three claimants now in a huge upset. Ruiz got off the canvas once and dropped Anthony Joshua four times en route to a seventh-round stoppage at Madison Square Garden on Saturday night. The build-up was all about Joshua making his U.S. debut, but from the beginning, nothing really went right for him. First, original opponent Jarrell Miller shot himself in the foot with a million hypodermic needles, uh, (laughs) prompting the selection of Ruiz as a less marketable alternative opponent. Then Deontay Wilder trolled Joshua heavily during fight week by announcing first that he would be fighting Luis Ortiz next, and then that he and Tyson Fury had signed for a rematch in 2020. And then it really got bad for AJ (laughs) when, after a decent start, and after dropping Ruiz in the third round, Joshua fell apart, uh, or more accurately, was taken apart by Ruiz. Mm. As we keep saying, one defeat does not mean the end of the road, but for now, for Joshua... It's all gone. The unbeaten record, the aura, the top dog status, the immediate prospect of a bout with Wilder or Fury, and all thanks to the fast combinations and hard punches of Andy Ruiz. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's take a bit of time to go through some of the, the questions and points that, that, that came out of Saturday night. And, and really, I think, to begin with, what the hell happened? Um, <laughs> you know, how did this happen? What did Ruiz do right? on Saturday night, and what did Joshua do wrong? Or was it all just Ruiz doing everything right? Uh, You know, playing Monday morning quarterback, knowing how it turned out, uh, you could say Joshua got too aggressive when he hurt Ruiz, Mm. and Ruiz was fearless and brilliant at counterpunching when Joshua opened himself up. I mean, that's Ruiz's strength, right? Uh, We we said before the fight, this guy has really fast hands, he's clever, he can counterpunch, he's slick, he's tough. 
All of which led to my prediction, not made on our podcast, but made via a legal sports bet, that Ruiz would not go quickly and easily, but rather would get stopped sometime in the second half of the fight. Uh, I didn't say it was a good prediction. I'm not bragging. <laughs> um, but, but I use it to show that those of us who'd seen Ruiz believed him to be a credible challenger who could at least make Joshua work for it. So knowing what we know now, it seems like Joshua got reckless. Um, however, in the first two rounds, a lot of Twitter was wondering, why doesn't Joshua just step to this guy and be a puncher right. and be aggressive and kick his fat ass? Um, so you can't really have it both ways. I think we know now that Ruiz is most dangerous when he's a little hurt. Um, not just in the third round, but in the seventh round, too. Joshua seemed to hurt him right before Ruiz started landing the punches that led to the end of the fight. So... Anyway, Ruiz did a lot right. He stayed poised. He believed in himself. He fought his fight. He used his hand speed. And he took advantage of the fact that Joshua, we now can say confidently, doesn't have the greatest chin and has stamina issues. Uh, these, these are things we've suspected, especially the stamina issues, which were clearly present in, in the middle of the Klitschko fight. Now it's a fact. Joshua gasses easily, especially once he's been cracked on the chin. Um, but ultimately, you know, the question that you started with of what the hell happened or, or how did this happen? I think it comes down to Ruiz. You know, he has a lot of experience in the amateurs and the pros. He knows what he's doing in there. And he was the more skilled boxer of the two yeah. with the faster hands. And he put it all together like most huge upsets. It's not so shocking in retrospect. Like right now, right. it kind of makes sense now that we've seen it play out. Um, but again, I guess the worst thing that happened to Joshua was hurting Ruiz. I wonder if he'd never hurt him, if he could have won a boring fight, you know, if, if it could have played out differently like that. But he did hurt him and he went after him and Ruiz responded perfectly. And, and that's really what, what won him the fight, the way he fought after he went down that first time. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, something you said in there that if you haven't heard the phrase before, it might sound stupid. But yeah, the key was Ruiz fought his fight and and that either Joshua let him fought his, fight his fight or Ruiz forced Joshua to let him to fight his fight. Right. I mean, even I, I honestly thought, even though, as we said last week, that, that Ruiz is a good fighter, that I just didn't think he'd be able to cope with 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 Joshua's jab, with his with his size, with his height, with his right hand. But right. even during those first couple rounds, he was preventing Joshua from really deploying those properly. He was walking Joshua down quite early on. And Joshua, you know, I didn't think he would let him do that. Um, and, but like you said, the big change was absolutely when he when he dropped him and he just he just went in there and got very sloppy uh, mm -hmm. in his attempt to get him out of there. Uh, you know, judging from the way that Ruiz got up from that knockdown, he didn't look like a guy who was super badly hurt. Um, he was hurt, but but not, you know, staggering backwards kind of hurt. And right. honestly, I don't know that Joshua ever really fully recovered from that first left hook that caught him, that began the sequence that led to the first knockdown. I mean, he mm -hmm. had these moments where he looked like he was getting his legs back under him, you know, especially in like the fifth round there and, and occasionally, but it, it only took one other tap on the chin and he'd be in trouble again. And I, I kind of wonder if he was fighting through a bit of a fog for most of the rest of the time. And he just, every time Ruiz fired those combinations again, Joshua just looked lost. And you mentioned about the stamina there. He just looked... 
I mean, he doesn't look to look at them. You wouldn't think that he was the guy who was horribly conditioned. But as <laughs> right. the fight went on, he appeared to be horribly conditioned. And I don't know if it was that he was just so tense, whether he's too bulky. Maybe he needs to trim down a bit or whether it was just that he was completely out of it. But he he looked absolutely spent by the end. Um, and talking of the end, mm-hmm. um, you are often a bit of a savage, frankly. <laughs> but were you okay with that stoppage? Uh, I had a couple people actually asked me, including folks who were there, whether I thought that Joshua quit. And I thought there were, I did see a few things that people gave that not flat out quit, but the kind of not showing a lot of interest in going on. Or do you think, as I did, that he was just out of it at the end? Yeah, I was initially surprised to see the word quit thrown around so much. And maybe shouldn't, I shouldn't be surprised by anything I see on social media. Um, But to me, that was not a quit. Here's what I saw. Joshua went down for the second time in the seventh round and spit out his mouthpiece. Yep. And it seemed like a Corrales Castillo move that, that he was getting his ass kicked. He was exhausted and that he did it intentionally to buy time. I think I don't know this. Uh, it's just it's just my best guess. He got up and the ref was asking him if he was OK. And he announced clearly, yes. But it seemed like he was looking toward the mouthpiece on the canvas, like he was waiting for the ref to call time and put it back in. And he leaned on the ropes in the corner because he wasn't expecting to be sent back into battle without a mouthpiece. Um, But the ref, I guess not wanting to give him the same, frankly, unfair advantage that Diego Corrales had 14 years ago, that kind of led to a rule change about washing off the mouthpiece when you spit it out intentionally. It seemed like the ref was prepared to make him continue without a mouthpiece. Joshua didn't come out of the corner, and the ref took it as a sign that he was done. Now add to all of this that Joshua was exhausted and was dazed from all the punches, so he's probably not thinking and communicating clearly. If he was totally clear-headed, he should have said to Michael Griffin, I need my mouthpiece, or something to that effect. He didn't. So I can't come down hard on Griffin for the stoppage. It was weird, but it made sense to him, I think. Yes. And the guy had been down four times, so how could how wrong could the stoppage possibly be when a guy's been dropped four times already? You can't get in too much trouble for halting the fight at that point. And as I tweeted, Joshua was basically done. I'm yeah. about 98% sure he wasn't going to get out of that round no matter what. There's still a minute and a half to go. Um, now, Boxing Scenes' Keith Eidek tweeted after the fight, Eddie Hearn just told us he got the sense from Anthony Joshua that he's relieved to have suffered his first loss because there was so much pressure on him. Interesting. Yeah, that seems believable. And if so, maybe internally, unconsciously, he was surrendering a little. Mm. Um, My personal opinion is that he did not quit at all. He was just exhausted and dazed and hurt, but he told the ref he wanted to continue. And he did complain when the ref stopped it. I mean... I saw some people saying, like, oh, he really didn't complain about the stoppage. He did for a few seconds there. Now, is he supposed to bitch and moan about the stoppage for the next 10 minutes to prove to all of Twitter that he wanted to fight? No, he's a classy guy. So once it was over, he, you know, didn't want to make a big stink about it. So to me, not a quit. He was just a beaten man. And I think the mouthpiece thing just made it weird and kind of unclear to the viewers what was happening. That's my interpretation of what I think was going on. Yeah, interesting. Um, I actually, that, that whole thing about him being released is interesting because some uh, another friend who was watching it on TV actually texted me the very same thing. Mm. I think he's relieved that the, that very word. Um, mm. I think he might be relieved that, that he, he's, he's lost, that like he is... 
uh, we don't know any in this country any boxers who have the profile that Anthony Joshua does in the UK and then a lot goes with that and right. I can understand you know and then you add to that his first fight in the United States and everything that's happened with this promotion I almost I can I can kind of get that I mean that's quite interesting um I read that Carl Frampton who presumably was on the call for Sky or, or, or in the studio for Sky or something, actually was very critical of Joshua for not being upset enough um, mm. afterwards. Saying, yeah, and obviously he was a real gentleman, I thought, in the way that he responded to Andy Ruiz. But right. Prampton was like, yeah, that's great. But honestly, as a fighter, he's just had his first loss. I would like to see him get be kind of pissed about the whole thing and angry with himself. And maybe that all feeds into that narrative. That's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, look, I, I thought the stoppage was fine. I agree with you that he, he, he was cooked. He was just cooked. And I thought also, credit to Brian Kenny on the call for DAZN, who saw what was unfolding there in the corner and was like, Joshua had better engage with the referee. Right. Or there's going to be trouble. Like he needs to. And I thought that was very. I thought that was very uh, perceptive of him to realize what was in danger of, of unfolding there. So, um, no, I agree with you. I I don't think he capitulated. You know, although those other observations are very interesting. I I, I honestly think he was probably fighting in a fog from halfway through the third round and. Yeah, he protested. He sort of did that what and then seemed to come to terms with it quite rapidly afterwards. So right. I, I, I'm not sure he really knew where he was. He, he was he was done. Um, so very rapidly uh, afterwards, uh, Eddie Hearn uh, pointed out that there was a rematch clause. He said that there would be that rematch and it would be in the UK in November or December. Um, after seeing what we saw, what do you think? AJ can do to turn this around if he can in a rematch. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I don't imagine he can improve his chin. If that is an issue, right. that's going to remain an issue. Maybe he can improve his stamina, but I don't think it's from a lack of training. Um, it's tough to get a guy at this stage of his career to fight more relaxed, especially mm. in an immediate rematch against a guy who just beat him. I don't know how he's going to come out there and suddenly go from you know young George Foreman who is so intense so tense that he tires himself out to relaxed old George Foreman that that's something that takes a decade to mm. to develop not uh not happen from one fight to the next I hate to say it but I think he needs to go into the Vlad Klitschko reinvention playbook <laughs> and become a boring defense first boxer who fights at distance and grabs guys when they get in close uh, stop looking at my notes <laughs> Uh, well, the, all that that really means is that it was a really ob obvious observation and neither of us should get yeah. too much credit for it. Yeah. Um, I, it won't be easy, but there is a path to victory against Ruiz in doing that sort of thing, fighting that sort of fight. And of course, Joshua is a tremendous natural puncher, so there's always a chance he can tee up a perfect right hand that Ruiz doesn't get up from next time. Um, but it's a tough hill to climb. His trainers have to restore his confidence and shore up his defense. And he knows what he's up against now in terms of speed and combinations and counters. So I guess that's better the second go around. Maybe he can pull off a Lewis Rockman too, or maybe he can pull off a Klitschko Povetkin type win where he just stinks it out. But mm -hmm. to me, I want to make clear that there was nothing fluky about this result. You, you have to make Ruiz the favorite next time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that the um, blueprint is out now mm -hmm. and I, for how to beat Anthony Joshua. And I think it's been there 
for a little while. Like we talked about it, that guys with fast hands can get to him and can hurt him and can wobble him. And when we talked about how that has happened, the fact is that just because of his athletic gifts and his, his talent uh, and his size, he's been able to go through those moments, you know, when Dylan White wobbled him and Alexander Povetkin wobbled him. Um, it, it's just that if you have that right combination, it seems, of speed and power and the ability to take what he's throwing at you, that's, that's how you beat him. So... You you mentioned confidence there. You know it's it's interesting. Like my first reaction was, I'm still thinking about this comment about him being relieved. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first thought was, yeah, it's risky going into a rematch because you wonder about his confidence after that. Because he, he he you know when you're when you're getting dropped that badly and that often, and and in that kind of a state, um, you wonder about that. But I do wonder, you know, what if there's something to that? And what if now this great weight has lifted off his shoulders and he's able to fight maybe with a little bit more freedom? Because he hasn't, ever since the Vladimir Klitschko fight, it's felt as if he's been treading water a little bit and, if anything, slightly regressing. Um, And maybe part of that came with the immense pressure that came from everything that happened to him after fighting in front of 90,000 people in in such a fight like that. Um, uh, So I, I don't know. It's... He ca- it's as you said, yeah, he has the capacity, he has the ability to beat Ruiz, but it kind of feels now as if going into this fight, I would have said for Ruiz to fight Joshua, everything would have to go right for him to pull it off. Now you're, you kind of feel like Joshua can beat <laughs> Ruiz, but everything has to go right for him. Yeah. You know what crazy. I mean? You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, that was my other observation as well, is that he might have to be prepared to exactly learn how to tie a guy up, learn how to lean on him, learn how to, how to be a bit stinky sometimes. And Vladimir wouldn't probably, or Vladimir version 2.0 would not have gone rushing in after knocking a guy down. He'd have gone back to his jab, wouldn't he? Um, And sometimes that's what you have to do. Whether he can do that and start to do that between now and November, of course, uh, is a different matter. Um, the other thing, obviously, the thought goes um, to going into this fight. There were there was the big three uh, that sort of shattered a little bit. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier Wilder's plans to fight Ortiz and then Fury, and we'll touch on them a bit uh, on that a, a bit later on. Fury, actually, who's a constant surprise, Tyson Fury, <laughs> um, posted I thought a very kind and generous note. Yeah. On Twitter. Yeah. Um, hey, mate, it's heavyweight boxing. Don't worry. It happens. Uh, Wilder was less kind. <laughs> um, but after the fact, or perhaps while it was happening, do you think either of them might now be wishing they'd done more or more had been done by others to make that fight with Joshua happen, that they'd have been the one to do what Andy Ruiz did to him? Yeah, I bet they both are wishing that, especially Wilder. Um, Once Joshua went down for the first time in the third round, um, I tweeted that no matter how this fight ends, Wilder just became the favorite over Joshua. Wilder's power and Joshua's punch resistance, that now feels like an awful formula for AJ. (laughs) Um, So I imagine Wilder has some regrets. For Fury, he's not really a puncher. It's a very different stylistic matchup, but still, I'm sure he watched this and wished it was him and saw a potential future payday going up in flames. Then again, those fights aren't dead. Um, I know that Joshua's zero and his aura are gone, but if he avenges the lost Ruiz, look, remember when... Juan Manuel Marquez iced Manny Pacquiao and Pacquiao had blown all that Mayweather money? 
Well, Pacquiao and Mayweather still sold 4.6 million pay-per-views. So anyone who writes off the possibility of a big Wilder Joshua or Fury Joshua fight down the road is being short-sighted. They, they, those can still happen. Certain things happen have to happen in between now and then. But uh, it's it, it's not over for Anthony Joshua, and it's not over for Absolutely. the hope for one of those big matchups. You know, it's funny, you know, to sort of follow on again from how that issue of how calculations can change rapidly and how we were talking after the Wilder fight about how if you're Anthony Joshua, you might want to fight Deontay Wilder as soon as you possibly can before Wild, because Wilder keeps getting better, it seems, with every fight. Right. And now you wonder if that calculation has been turned on its head and actually Joshua needs to delay it a bit until he can iron out all the flaws in his game. Yeah. Um, uh, conversely, he might feel, well, if, you know, he should probably cash in while he can before somebody else comes along and, and, and does a release on him. Um, you know, I guess any my who knows what what you know what goes on in these guys heads but my sense is that probably wilder and fury each feel a lot more relaxed about the joshua situation now that they have apparently agreed to fight each other again and they have each other and they both maintain that joshua was a notch below the both of them and i'm sure they'll feel justified in that position even if a little bit financially poorer than they might have been had they actually proven it um and yeah they have each other and yes, look, if Joshua turns this back around, like he said, and proves to be stronger and better going forward for this experience, then, then yes, as absolutely right. Those matchups are, are still down the line. You know who else is kicking himself is Vladimir. Like, mm. I'm sure he was, he was kicking himself after his fight with AJ, uh, wondering why he let him off the hook. And watching somebody else not let him off the hook. Well, sort of, sort of. But then people were saying that at the end of round three of this fight, I saw some people saying, oh, I think Andy Ruiz missed his chance. He didn't finish him, just like like Vladimir. And Ruiz kind of took his time and got another opportunity later. So... I don't know. It's it's all very results oriented. What it happened is. with Vladimir uh, that, you know, had he gone in to really try to finish it and maybe what happened to Joshua against Ruiz getting caught being too aggressive happens to Vladimir. It's yeah, it's all it's all very results oriented thinking. It so. is. Oh, I, you want you definitely got the impression with Vladimir that what he was doing was overthinking it a little bit and thinking about previous times where he's gotten right. himself in trouble and and just hanging back. Whereas one kind of wonders with Ruiz whether he was just waiting for that other opportunity to strike again because he, you know, once the opportunity came, he certainly wasn't afraid to strike. So true. Um, but yes, there are a lot of there are a lot of people being self kicked. <laughs> right now but Andy Ruiz is not one of them I'll tell you who is probably one of them and it's his own damn fault is Jarrell Big Baby Miller and Mm. do you think that had he not um screwed everything up for himself he might have been able to do what Andy Ruiz did this is a great question this is one of those all-time sliding doors situations it's a whole different world if Jarrell Miller's blood is clean Obviously, anything is possible in boxing. We, we know that uh, now more than ever. Uh, he could have knocked Joshua out, but I think it's unlikely. I think this was mostly about the Ruiz skill set and the way he matched up with Joshua. And I don't think Miller has anywhere near Ruiz's counterpunching instincts. Um, see, this is the thing. When we talk about boxing skill... You have your guys who just know what they're doing in there. They know what their bodies need to do because it's ingrained in their muscles and their boxing brains. And then you have your guys who are thinking in the ring, who have to tell their body what punch to throw and when and how. 
I think Miller is more of the latter type of guy, whereas Ruiz, clearly, it's ingrained in him. Uh, You saw it to an extent with Fury and Wilder, um, although Wilder had the heart and the chin and the stamina and the power to make a fight of it and almost get the knockout despite being outskilled. Um, Anyway, uh, sliding doors... I think Joshua beats Big Baby according to script, and it's a whole different heavyweight world than than what we're looking at now. Yeah, I think that's probably true. You know, to to get back to that point you were talking about, I mean, one of the things that was really evident with Ruiz is even after he got knocked down, he looked really relaxed in the ring, didn't he? He looked, like you said, he's not one of those guys who's having to to think it through. and, And whereas Joshua, he just, from the beginning, he just looked nervous about the prospect of Ruiz catching him with those fast hands. And, and he was definitely thinking everything. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's probably right. I think it was the, 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 the speed of the combinations in close that Ruiz has. And Miller can throw some pretty fast punches too, surprisingly so for such a big guy, but not, not quite the same. I, I think this was more Andy Ruiz winning this fight than Anthony Joshua losing it. It's a bit of both, obviously, right, but, right. but, you know, I think Ruiz deserves that credit there, and I'm not sure then that that was necessarily repli- replicable. Um, let's talk about Andy Ruiz more, mm-hmm. and let's leap leap way, way ahead here. Let's just say, for example, they have their rematch and Ruiz wins it again. Um, suddenly now maybe we still do, we, we do have a big three again, perhaps. It's just that the, the, the members are different. How do you think Andy Ruiz matches up against... Wilder and Fury. Hmm. I haven't thought about it too much yet. Uh, this is all fairly new, having to think about how Andy Ruiz <laughs> matches up with everyone. I think I make Ruiz the underdog in either of those fights. Yep. I think Fury is skilled and awkward enough to deal with Ruiz's speed and cause more problems for Ruiz than Ruiz can cause for him. Wilder is more interesting. I, I think Ruiz is more live there, but I also think... If Wilder lands what Joshua landed in the third round, Ruiz is less likely yeah. to get up. Uh, and from what we've seen, Wilder handles getting punched back better. Um, I think of the three heads on our former three-headed monster, Ruiz got the shot at the one best suited to his style. Again, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking there. Right. Um, but but right. that's how it looks now. Um, but, you know, and, and we'll talk about this more in, in a bit. If Ruiz wins a rematch with Joshua, fans now have a better chance of getting to see all of this play out, not just having to wonder about it. But if Ruiz becomes the new third head on this monster officially by winning a rematch with Joshua, there's a better chance of determining who the real champ is. Yeah, yeah. I I think Fury is the more difficult matchup. He really negates, I think, Ruiz's biggest strength. He's the tall guy who moves around like a much smaller guy. He's yeah. a technical boxer. Yep. He's just not going to let Ruiz get near him, I, I think. that's a, I think that's a tough night for Ruiz. And, and I, I agree with you that, theoretically, Wilder's a bit of a more difficult one to call because Wilder's still a, still a tough one to figure out. Um, he, you know, he still doesn't fight well backing up. It's just that it's been a while since anyone's been able to back him up. Right. Um, the thing I think the problem is, I, I I think you need a pretty darn good jab to really set up an offense against Wilder. And that's not necessarily Ruiz's strength. It's sort of slipping in underneath and then, you know, doing what he did to Joshua, firing off those combinations. Um, and I just don't think Wilder would be as quiescent as, as, as Joshua was. He, you know, he fights like a heat-seeking missile. And I think 
it could work against him, the fact that basically he throws every punch to try and take your head off, or it could also work in his favor. It might, right. it might prove sufficiently dissuasive. Um, but, and like you said, I think he's got the better chin and, and swift, regen- uh, swifter regenerative powers. But yeah, I would make Ruiz the underdog against both, but Ruiz was a massive underdog against Joshua, and that works out all right for him. So <laughs> right. There you go. Um, uh, it was indeed quite the upset, really. There's, there's notwithstanding the fact that Andy Ruiz was acknowledged by people who'd seen him fight, who knew him to be a very good fighter. Nonetheless, there's no question that this was a huge upset. How big of an upset was it? Uh, Lee Groves and Cliff Rolls uh, both making the case on social media, a, a somewhat very closely defined case in Cliff's case, um, that given the relative merits of the boxes involved, this could actually st- equal or surpass Douglas Tyson as an upset. I doubt that either of us agree with that. But you, I think, posed this question on Twitter. Is it the biggest upset since Douglas Tyson? Yeah, I kind of addressed both sides of that. I made clear that uh, because it was right after one of the commentators, like within a minute or so after the fight ending, and I forget if it was Sergio Mora or Chris Mannix, but somebody said bigger upset than Douglas Tyson. And I immediately had to get on Twitter to say, no, no, God, no, slow down. Um, But could well be the biggest upset in the heavyweight division since then. But let me first address the Douglas Tyson comparison, um, because I was kind of at the center of that whole conversation as a result of tweeting that an upset has to be judged based on the perception coming into the fight, not not with 2020 hindsight knowledge. In hindsight, yeah, Tyson wasn't training hard and Buster had the perfect style and blah, blah, blah. If you were alive and aware of boxing in 1990, you know what the perception of Tyson was, that that he was invincible. And you would have gotten laughed out of the room if you said Buster was going to last three full rounds with him. That's how Tyson fights went. Uh, There was no point in stopping to think about how Douglas could beat him. That was a waste of time. Um, I don't think there will ever be another boxing upset that big again because that night taught an entire generation or or multiple generations that no one is invincible. Now we know. uh, As good as many thought AJ was or think Wilder is or think Lomachenko is or Mayweather or whoever, nobody is invincible. We get that now. Mike Tyson, entering the year 1990, was the last boxer who had that particular aura. So I don't think we'll ever see an upset that incredible again. Um, And if you don't like the sort of nebulous nature of the invincibility argument, then you can also go ahead and look at the numbers. Douglas was a 37 to one underdog. Ruiz was between eight to one and 14 to one. And now part of that is that odds makers are more conservative with boxing. Now they kind of dare betters to take the wrong end of the number on both sides, but still, numerically Ruiz is in a similar ballpark to Rockman in the first Lewis fight. I think he was between about a 10 to one and 15 to one underdog. Um, I consider this a bigger upset than that because we knew Rockman could punch. And this wasn't just something we said after the fight, we knew going in that Lewis wasn't training seriously. Plenty of people came into that fight predicting the upset or at least recognizing the threat. Um, There was less of that with Ruiz. Some have compared this already to Corey Sanders and Vladimir Klitschko. I could see that. It's a similar level of upset, what Ruiz did against Joshua. But Vlad had lost to Ross Purity. He wasn't the number one guy at the time. He was still pretty unproven. So I will say 
yes, narrowly over Rockman Lewis and Sanders Klitschko, I would say Ruiz Joshua was the biggest heavyweight upset since Douglas Tyson. Do you agree? Yeah, uh, uh, completely. I was going through all the various different upsets, you know, big upsets that there have been. And there's always there's a mitigating factor in all of them. Like I'm one of those who did predict, actually, that Rackman would beat Lewis the first time for precisely because of Lennox's distractions. Mm. Um, Vladimir, when he lost to Sanders, was still being hyped as possibly the next big thing. But like you said, there was the Ross Purity loss and he just wasn't as big. Um uh, as AJ is now, you could argue Holyfield Tyson, but Tyson had already lost to Douglas um, and, and was coming but back. But it was still, so, num- numerically, that was a huge upset, too. It that was. was uh, it was a huge upset. Yeah. But putting it in this context, right. um, you know, we knew that Tyson perhaps had some vulnerability. I mean, I'm, I actually thought Mike would probably knock Vander out in the first round in that fight. Yeah, a lot um, of people did. Yep. So, so it's up there. I, I so yeah, I certainly have it substantially bigger than Rackman Lewis. Maybe it's, and I, yeah, I think Rackman Lewis wasn't that much of an upset because of what we knew. It was an upset, but it wasn't on the same scale because we knew what we knew going into it. Um, you know, oddly, Lehman Brewster Vladimir Klitschko was a bigger, in a sense, a, a bigger deal than Sanders Klitschko, simply because Klitschko had more established himself at that point. Um, I'm trying to remember. I thought it was pretty soon after the Sanders fight. Um, <coughs> but he sort of already maybe maybe it had a couple comeback wins. But but it's it, you could certainly make the case it was at least as big an upset just because I don't think anyone thought much of Lehman Brewster coming into the fight. Precisely. I remember being at that fight and just the matchmaker just being contemptuous that this fight had been made. And, right. Uh, almost. So yeah, the the. Been some big upsets, but they all sort of had those sort of extenuating factors about them. And this yeah. one feels as if it did really, it was a case of, a, and add in the fact that Ruiz was the late replacement as well. Yeah. Uh, that's the extra factor. So no, I think it probably is. I think it has to be considered, at least in the heavyweight division, and, and in much of boxing, arguably, the, the biggest uh, upset since then. So, All right. Um, it was not the only fight on the card. Uh, in the co-main event, uh, Callum Smith dropped Hassan Undam three times and stopped him in the third round. Uh, left hook in the first, the left hook in the second, and a crunching right hand in the third in the super middleweight contest. Uh, how impressed were you about that? Uh, I didn't have time to be impressed. I was too busy marveling over how enormous Smith's frame is for a super middleweight. Yeah. Uh, and then after I was done with that, I was too busy making bad and um, and Callum puns back and forth with David Greisman on Twitter. Um, but uh, seriously, how, how could how could you not be impressed? Um, yeah, and um, looked a little washy. Uh, right. But uh, you know, Canelo's name was thrown out afterwards. If I'm Canelo, with all the options out there at 160 yeah. pounds, some other options at 168, I don't see any reason to go near Callum Smith right now. Yeah. Smith looks to me like the top guy at super middle. Yeah, I agree. I think I think he has to be. You know, this is his first outing since he um, he, he walloped George Groves. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's looking very good. Of the Smith brothers, he certainly does appear to be by some distance the best. Uh, he's a like you said, he's a big, solid man. It was interesting that brief period that Daniel Jacobs joined in on commentary. Basically, he just kept saying, "Wow, this guy's big." That was pretty much the extent of his analysis. I think he was quite <laughs> impressed. Um, he's very relaxed in the ring. 
um, boxes well, punches well. It's, it's how relaxed he is, I think, as well as his size. It's really very impressive. Uh, I agree with you that he's got to be the top dog there at 68. And yeah, and Dan's been in a few, uh, a few brawls, a few wars. He's been knocked down a bunch, uh, although he keeps bouncing back up every time he gets knocked down. But nobody has done that to him, right. um, I think. Uh, so it was very nearly a disastrous night for Matchroom. Uh, their biggest star took his first loss. And perhaps, you know, at least in the UK, their second biggest star nearly took hers too. Katie Taylor squeaking past Delphine Person by majority decision to become undisputed uh, lightweight champ. It was a terrific fight. And two questions for you. Do you think this could actually be a fight of the year contender? And did you agree with the score? Uh, it's certainly the best women's fight of the year so far. Yep. I, I don't know if that's misogynistic of me to think of it in those terms. Uh, but um, that's where my mind goes first. I guess I could see it ending up in my top 10 boxing matches of the year when all said and done. I would say for now, Williams versus Hurd is mm-hmm. my, my current leader in the clubhouse. Um, one thing maybe hurting it in terms of me considering it the fight of the year is that uh, I disagreed with the decision. That that doesn't help when the outcome doesn't right. match the fight that I saw. Great fight, great effort by both ladies. I don't mean to take anything away from Katie Taylor, but Persone got hosed in, in my view. I had it 97-93. Uh, there, was, there were several close rounds, um, but I don't know. I thought there were five rounds that Persone fairly clearly won. Um, now, it's tough to be too clear in a two-minute round with punches flying right. both ways, but I thought rounds two, five, eight, nine, and 10 were all Persones without having to debate it in my mind very much. So the best I would have been okay with for Taylor was a draw. I really disagreed with the final verdict. Um, I guess it's good for Clarissa Shields. Strengthens her claim to being yep. not not just the quote, uh, but the current pound for pound queen. Um, but uh, then again, mentioning Shields, you know, styles make fights. Uh, the uh, phrase that I coined recently. Um, Persone was <laughs> tremendously awkward, whereas Christina Hammer was as unawkward as a boxer can be. Uh, Hammer boxes completely by the book. Um, but anyway, bad style matchup or not. Not a great night for Katie Taylor, in my view. I thought she was very fortunate to get that win. Yeah, I, I thought it was a draw myself. Okay. Um, uh, I think probably I could see it for for Persone uh, more than I could see it for 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 Taylor because I think there for me I was watching I thought I thought there were a couple of rounds where it's, you could give it to Taylor because even though Persone was really taking it to her and was clearly the aggressor and was clearly making her uncomfortable, there were a couple of rounds, especially sort of in the middle, where Taylor was just about able to slip some of the worst of those and then get inside and land very quick combinations that weren't as eye-catching or as effect or uh, apparently effective as Persone's punches, but were good little scoring punches. And I and I think there were probably that's probably what stole it for her was if the judges was was seeing that you know her sort of stepping inside and 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 landing some of those punches. But that relentlessness of Persone down the stretch really reeling her in and yeah. We've talked before about how it's frustrating uh, for some uh, female fighters that rounds are only two minutes. God, I'll bet Katie Taylor was glad at the end of that 10th <laughs> round there are only yes. two minutes in those because she was getting shellacked in that final round. Um, yeah, and, and, and one very important note uh, about this, uh, 
Katie Taylor needs to do what almost all women fighters do and and do the braided hair or the dreadlocks yeah. or, or something. Uh, she that It wasn't helping the aesthetics of it that she had this mop of hair in her Makes eyes. Makes you look ragged, the doesn't it? Yes. It's, like, yes. it's like David Lemieux would always come in with, with just the worst hairstyles because every time like Gennady Golovkin cracked him, he his mohawk flopped <laughs> right. all over the place. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. It really did make it look like she was really in, in big trouble but yeah you know I, I could definitely have it also in you know in my fight of the year finalist so far but the quality i agree with you the quality wasn't there enough for it to to usurp williams heard yet but right now it's damn exciting though yeah I must say. yeah um also on the card our buddy chris algeri looked uh, mighty impressive uh, uh joshua buatzi uh dominated veteran Marco Antonio Paraban to go to 11-0 and and continue his march through an increasingly interesting light heavyweight division. Uh, Josh Kelly showed that fighting like Roy Jones Jr. is fine if you're Roy Jones Jr., but if you're not, you better learn to jab a bit too. Um, he was hustled to a draw by the new Ray Robinson. Um, all in all, I thought from top to bottom, it was a terrific card. Um, perhaps a fringe fight of the year contender. Clearly, I think the third round uh, of uh, Ruiz Joshua, a, a round of the year contender. And unless something dramatic happens between now and December 31st, uh, the provisional upset of the year lock. Uh, I tweeted this afterwards. This has to be the best card of the year so far, doesn't it? Top to yeah. bottom? Yeah, I, I suppose so. It's hard to think of, of what could beat it so far. Had a, a little something for everybody. And I wouldn't have guessed that going in. And, and no. that's why they fight the fights. Uh, you know, how many great cards on paper have we seen turn out boring uh and then you know along comes uh, uh what looks like a ho-hum card where almost every fight had one boxer as a huge betting favorite and it's all thrills and upsets and near upsets the theater of the damned unexpected uh, <laughs> boxing man uh, th this was one of those nights where you just feel sorry for people who don't watch boxing, who would rather watch golf or whatever. They're missing out. Um, we suffer a lot to get to a night like this. We, we right. sit through a lot of bad ones, but this was one of the good ones. I think it was Nigel Collins who tweeted something like, Nights like Saturday, exactly that kind of point. Nights like Saturday are what make all the dreck <laughs> and the fights that aren't made and everything sort of worth suffering through. Yep. Um, clearly the the card that dominated the headlines um and the social media response uh it's hard to remember but it actually wasn't the only card on saturday night though eric no uh yeah i didn't see much of anyone uh tweeting about the card going on on fs1 at the same time uh but there was a card uh and really just one noteworthy result on that uh fs1 card uh ivan redcatch uh brutally knocking out devin alexander in the sixth round there was some tremendous over-the-top screaming by ray mancini on every knockdown uh, that was kind of a highlight um but uh, you know i think we discussed this fight as something of a loser leaves town match uh mm. You know, neither is really a contender. They're both on the fringes and they can't both stay on the fringes. That was how we viewed this going in. So Red Catch gets to stay. Uh, but Devin Alexander, even though he looked fine for the first five rounds, uh, looked more or less like his old self. I think this loss dropping him now to two, five and one in his last mm. eight. It's time to stop considering him even a fringe contender. He had a fine yeah. career, but it looks over for him as a meaningful fighter. All right, uh, let's take a step back after that. Just the 
breathlessness of Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look at some of the other news around the boxing world. And actually, let's, let's sort of stay in the orbit uh, of that uh, for a while. As we mentioned, look, during the final buildup to Joshua Ruiz, Deontay Wilder dropping a social media bomb, as one would expect from the leader of the bomb squad, <laughs> right. when he announced that his next fight would be a rematch with Luis Ortiz. Uh, no date yet, although we're led to believe it will most likely be in either early or late September. Um, Eric, obviously, we'll talk about it more as the fight approaches. But early thoughts, first of all, are you at all surprised that this is the next contest for Wilder? And right now, how do you see it going? Yeah, I fully expected this would be his next fight, especially after Ortiz got in the ring with him post-Brazil fight. Uh, It makes all the sense in the world. If he couldn't get Joshua or Fury next and Usyk is recovering from injury and hasn't fought at the weight yet, Ortiz was as marketable an option as anyone. Um, Maybe mildly surprised he announced it when he did, but I guess there was some gamesmanship there. Right. uh, Very Floyd Mayweather of him. Exactly, and then... Uh, after what happened on Saturday night. I guess it didn't matter. He didn't need to bother with the gamesmanship. But um, in terms of a way early prediction, I think the standard line of thinking is that Wilder is getting better. Ortiz is not. So it doesn't last as long the second time, but that you'd be a fool to discount the danger that Ortiz presents. I think that's sort of the general way of looking at this fight for now. So Wilder announced that fight during Joshua Ruiz fight week, but as you noted at the top of the podcast, he wasn't done announcing fights. Uh, On Friday, he announced that, assuming he beats Ortiz, he will then have another rematch, this one with Tyson Fury in early 2020. Not only was this not just an empty promise, he assured us, but contracts had in fact been signed. Um, If indeed it comes to pass, it will be the first PBC top-ranked co-promotion since Mayweather-Pacquiao in 2015. Uh, Kieran, you once declared that the percentage chance of Maypac taking place was (laughs) zero. Uh, On a scale of one to ten, uh, how surprised were you by the announcement of this fight? 15, maybe 20. (laughs) I was immensely surprised. I I really felt... After Fury walked out on negotiations for the for the Wilder rematch um, a couple of months ago and then signed the deal with ESPN, I really did feel that of all the possible permutations between the then big three, RIP, um, <laughs> the two involving Fury were the least likely to be made. I really thought that, um, not least given, you know, Bob Arum's lack of love for both Eddie Hearn and Al Heyman and the fact that he insists that, you know, everything has to be done on ESPN, uh, I'm, I'm really sh- shocked, ple- very pleasantly shocked, um, maybe having looked as if it was about to take defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, heavyweight boxing is actually going to fulfill some of the promises it's, it's made after all. We're going to have, I assume, two broadcasting powerhouses, ESPN and either Fox or Showtime, working together. And in the case of ESPN, that's not something that they're used to doing. Um, If that is what happens, that's going to be an interesting uh, scenario to watch being put together. But but it's going to be absolutely worth it. Um, Yes, Wilder should not be overlooking Luis Ortiz, who remains extremely dangerous. And uh, if ever we think about... uh, any fighter overlooking someone else, we will just replay Saturday night. Um, <laughs> yep. But nonetheless, if that does happen, then uh, yeah, that, it, it's it's a year late. But what the hell? If it happens, it happens, and I'll be very happy to see it. Yeah. 
Uh, also in heavyweight news, because apparently there is an endless supply of heavyweight <laughs> news this week, uh, undefeated British prospect Joe Joyce will be meeting former world title challenger Brian Jennings on July 13th at the O2 Arena in London. That's a significant step up there for Joyce. Uh, the day before that, Showbox returns with a doubleheader featuring unbeaten heavyweight prospects Jermaine Franklin and Otto Wallen in separate bouts. Kieran, what can we look forward to here? Well, I'll take the Showbox card first. Uh, it'll be good to actually get to see something of Wallen, hopefully, as uh, on his U.S. debut um, uh, on the Clarissa Shields-Christina Hammer undercard. Uh, his fight ended almost as soon as it began yeah. um, because of a clash of heads. So it'll be nice to see what he actually has. And it'll be good to get another look at at Jermaine Franklin. Um, the jury's still a little bit out on him, I think, and his his potential. He certainly is very high on his own potential. Um, a, a good win for himself on that same card last time, but it will be, again, good to see uh, see him tested against perhaps a fresher opponent uh, than he had last time around. So um, as for Joyce Jennings, I love this fight. Yeah. I mean, one. I absolutely love this. I'm not yet sold on Joyce. Uh, he hits damn hard and he throws a ton of punches, um, but his movement at times is horrendous. Um, and I, I wonder how he will cope against the very best. Jennings isn't the very best, but he's been in with the very best. Um, and, you know, most importantly, he survived being trapped in an elevator with Brian Campbell and me. So he's a, <laughs> I, this is a look. This is a really legit test. Like you said, this is quite some step up. Uh, if Joyce does come through this then he he really is legit. Um, it's really, really interesting, bold matchmaking. Really interested in this fight. Tell, tell Jennings to talk to me when he survived being trapped in a hotel room <laughs> with you and Brian Campbell. Okay? <laughs> That's the real test. Yes, indeed. Um, we talked about Tyson Fury. Uh, the Tom Schwartz matchup uh, coming up in a couple of weeks might not float too many people's boats. Uh, but the newly announced co-main. Mike, Philadelphia's Jesse Hart, whose only losses have been two close points defeats to super middleweight uh, titleist Gilberto Ramirez, steps up to light heavyweight to take on the always dangerous Sullivan Barrera. Uh, I find this matchup intriguing as well. Do you find it as intriguing as I do? <laughs> Your voice went up uh, a couple uh, octaves. Very Kramer-esque uh, there. Do you yeah. find this as intriguing as yeah, I do? Yeah, but good. I think it's good. Uh, no, I absolutely do. Excellent fight. Uh, kind of saves the Fury Schwartz show for the serious fans. Um, although I am now hesitating to write off Schwartz totally based on what Andy Ruiz just did. Uh, I, I don't want to have egg on my face by saying a fighter has no chance. Um, but Schwartz has no chance. Uh, so this card needed a good co-feature and Top Rank put one together. Um, and here's a final strange note for this week's uh, fight announcement news segment. Amir Khan's next contest, following his thumping by Terence Crawford, will be on July 12th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, against India's Niraj Goyat. Uh, Kieran, who is Niraj Goyat, and what is going on here? Um, right, well, to take the latter part of the question first, on the broader scale, what's going on is illustrated by the fact that the announcement press release focused as much on the country where the fight is taking place and on Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, as it did on the fighters. Um, bizarrely, Saudi Arabia finds that it has an image problem. So yeah. uh, this is a case of, oh, look, don't look at the dismembered journalist over right. there. Look, sports, look how fun Saudi Arabia is. Um, and that's part of this whole like PR push for Saudi Arabia, and that's why the fight is happening there. Um, as for 
on the sort of more micro level uh, why Amir Khan is taking this fight and against who. Uh, he is taking on an Indian boxer who has uh, an 11 3 and 1 record, I think, or maybe 11 3 and 2. Um, apparently, he is the first Indian boxer, Mr. Goyat, ever to win a 12 round contest. Uh, professional boxing, not, and it's somewhat in its infancy in uh, the great nation of India. Um, as for why, also why El Samir Khan is doing this, it's because he's being paid $7 million to do it, apparently. Um, he's coming off perhaps the most sustained battering of, of his career. Uh, and really, it sort of makes sense. What better way to come back than against a guy who should offer no resistance while pocketing a very large amount of money uh, in the process. But if he is, as Carl Frotch said that he thinks he is, shot to pieces, it's better that he finds out against a guy like this than against, say, Kel Brook. Um, and if he isn't, then he might as well have a nice confidence-building comeback fight uh, against this guy and swell his bank account before seeing if he has one last run left in him. Hmm. Well, not to make light of very serious matters, uh, but... Uh... As a journalist and uh, as one who has occasionally uh, tweeted his political opinions, I will not be covering this fight in person. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Um, let's uh, finish by talking about this coming weekend's fights. Uh, we'll skip right past the Zab Judah Cletus Seldon matchup at Turning Stone Casino, <laughs> which we already touched on a few weeks back when it was announced. Uh, that's on Friday, June 7th and has no national TV. The following night on a card in Reno that will be televised on ESPN, Oscar Valdez defends his featherweight belt against one Jason Sanchez. Kieran, what can we expect from that matchup? Well, I love me some Oscar Valdez. I mean, he's just mm. a wonderfully skilled boxer and who for a while there went from being a very good technical boxer to Arturo Gatti um, until, you know, he broke his jaw while defeating Scott Quigg and, and had to take some time off. Um, he returned in January with a sort of retightened defense. I suspect going forward, he's going to try to thread that needle, find some middle ground between the early technical boxer and, and the exciting fighter. He should theoretically have too much for Sanchez, who is fighting out of Albuquerque. He's 14-0. He's making a major step up. But I'm just for a while not going to just... <laughs> We're just going to stay away from all those he should win this kind of thing. It's because who the hell knows anymore? <laughs> right. Really. Throw a dart. Um, which, which is a very good segue mm. into our next little preview, um, because the big fight that weekend is once again in New York, once again in Madison Square Garden, as Gennady Golovkin begins the next stage of his career, following his wafer-thin and controversial decision loss to Canelo Alvarez last September. He takes on Canadian Steve Rolls. Uh, so, Eric, uh, who is Steve Rolls? And again, at the risk of like falling into the same trap is there any chance he pulls off an upset here yeah it's just like uh, you were just saying and uh, i was just saying about tom schwartz you know we're, we're all in a never say never mindset um <laughs> but the sports books have triple g as a 100 to 1 favorite uh they had joshua at anywhere from 20 to 1 to 40 to 1 this is 100 to 1 like fury schwartz so it lets you know what a perceived mismatch this is don't tell Lou DiBella that. Um, he insists that Rolls is a good middleweight. It's impossible to know from Rolls' record. He's 19-0, and 0, 10 KOs. He won an exciting showbox fight over Damon Nicholson by split decision over eight rounds in 2017. Nicholson was probably his best opponent. There's just nobody on Rolls' record to remotely compare with Golovkin. Uh, Rolls is 35 years old. Uh, he got a late start as a pro. 
can I say definitively that he's another Dominic Wade or Vanis Martirosian who's just going to get blown right out of there? No. You know, he might be, but he also might be closer to a Willie Monroe level. Um, but look, as best a, I can tell, he's somewhere on that end of the spectrum. And if he gives Triple G a run for his money, I'll admit I was wrong, and I'll tweet directly to Lou DiBella that he's smart and I'm <laughs> dumb, and he's handsome and I'm ugly, and whatever else he wants. Uh, but this looks to me like really easy work for Triple G. Um Obviously, the big sub-story with this fight, uh, which we already addressed when news initially broke, is that this will be the first time in about a decade that Golovkin will have someone other than Abel Sanchez in his corner. Uh, Jonathan Banks has taken over head trainer duties. Kieran, have you seen or heard anything during the buildup that suggests anything different about how Triple G has approached this fight or will fight this fight? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. You know, when we first spoke about his picking Banks, um, we were... Well, I was a little bit dismissive, thinking that, you know, maybe this was a classic safe choice, him picking somebody who wasn't going to push him or, or, or sort of seek to control him quite so much. But, you know, while the break with Sanchez was supposedly over money, at least by Abel's telling, you know, Gennady's been pouring a bit of cold water on that. Um, and he and his people have been saying that, you know, Abel had been getting a little bit too knockout happy. Uh, in training and focusing more on throwing big bombs and not the kind of combinations that had made Gennady so effective early on. Uh, You know, I don't know whether that's, you know, a little bit of retconning going on and trying, you know, justification or whatever. But, you know, he has said uh, that he, you know, Banks has a lot more mitt work in, in his training and, and Gennady seems to like that. And from the video that I've seen and the pictures that I've seen of him, he looks really nice and lean and muscled. Um, he looks looks really ripped, perhaps a bit more even than usual. I may have done Banks a disservice. Maybe this is actually a good matchup. We'll, uh, uh, we'll see, of course, whether fighting roles will be the one that really demonstrates one way or the other how good um, that combination is. Uh, I don't know. It might teach us nothing. But... Assuming that Gennady does get past roles, you have to assume that in theory, at least from Golovkin's perspective, the third fight with Canelo is next. Uh, is there any other fight for either guy that you'd be okay with sort of as a treading water thing? Or do we need to get back into that uh, rivalry? And how confident are you that that will, in fact, be the next bout for both guys, presumably this September, assuming Gennady Golovkin beats Steve Rolls? <laughs> right. Um I think it's going to happen unless Canelo is just in the mood to play head games with Triple G and jerk <laughs> him around. Um, but I sense that DAZN wants to make a big push to get a sense of what their subscriber ceiling is this mm. year. Uh, they certainly want this fight for September. Canelo came through the Jacobs fight relatively unscathed. I would think he can physically handle another serious challenge this year. It's certainly the fight I want to see. Let's end the trilogy. Let's settle the business. You know, unless Triple G wins, then I guess it's unsettled. Uh, then, right. then they might need to do it again. But whatever. I want to see it one more time. The first fight was very good. The second fight was great. To me, anything else in September will be a letdown, even though there are other tough fights out there for Canelo, like Demetrius Andrade, the aforementioned Callum Smith, etc. Uh, that, that's This is really the fight that 
I want to see and that it seems DAZN wants to see and that mm. certainly Triple G wants to see. Uh, it's mostly going to be up to Canelo, I guess. Yeah. Um, one final note on Golovkin. He's generally been known for being ferocious in the ring, but quiet and generally devoid of trash talking outside of it. But of late, he's been salty. Uh, you already addressed <laughs> his gentle smackdown of Abel Sanchez, but uh, he's also dismissed the Canelo-Daniel Jacobs fight as boring and dismissed the prospect of a bout with Billy Joe Saunders as not serious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't do the best Very triple good. G. Eh, it's, it's okay. Bad, it's okay. Yeah, there are others in the boxing media who do that one better. But anyway, um, you spent quite a lot of time with him in the past in camp and uh, conducting interviews. Is this a new Golovkin or a different angle to the old one? Yeah, no, he's actually always had that edge to him. He just, I think he just generally in the past sought to keep it a little hidden, feeling that that was best for marketing purposes. Um, but it would come to the fore occasionally. I mean, remember his seething hatred of Curtis Stevens. He just, he couldn't keep that right. bottle up. Um, and then I just think that what's happened is, and we've talked about this before, he's just been ground down by, and he's grown fed up with the business of boxing. And I think he no longer sees the need to keep his frustrations and his feelings and his opinions to himself. And that's part of the reason why he now often talks Russian with a translator, because he wants to make sure that everybody understands exactly what it is that he's trying to say, um, that there's no mistake. Uh this all began after the first Canelo fight, and it's and it's only gathered steam since. He's still a nice guy to be around, but uh, there's just less of a filter now. I think we might be seeing a bit more of the actual Gennady Golovkin. Hmm. All right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, one quick note, you may recall last week, I promised a look at this year's Hall of Fame class and an interview with a Hall of Fame inductee. That was a lie! That will now happen <laughs> next week. Um, and also, uh, before we go, we should note that this past Friday, the evening before Ruiz Joshua, uh, the Boxing Writers Association of America held its annual rewards dinner. Uh, fighter of the year was Alexander Usyk. The trainer of the year, again, Anatoly Lomachenko. Uh, and fight of the year was the tremendous battle on Showtime Championship Boxing between Jarrett Hurd and Eris Landy Lara. And as we've talked about, Hurd has to be in with a shot winning again uh, next year for that fight with uh, J-Rock Williams. Um, special congratulations to our boss, Stephen Espinosa, for winning the Sam Torb Award for Excellence in Boxing Broadcasting, and to the quote, Clarissa Shields, for picking up the Christy Martin Award for Female Fighter of the Year. And, like heard, you have to figure she's in a good shape to win back-to-back -back awards also. Um, as for us, we still await the inaugural Boxing Podcasters of the Year Award. But we'll keep on plugging away in the hope of eventually catching the BWAA's eye. And to that end, we shall indeed return next week where they look back at Steve Roll's uh, remarkable, dramatic knockout win <laughs> over Gennady Klovkin. <laughs> and we will look ahead to Tom Schwartz's entry into the big three of heavyweight boxing. See Tyson Fury. Uh, and then hopefully we will also have the previously promised but delayed conversation with a newly minted Hall of Famer. Until then, thanks for listening.